not to sound like some primitivist, but just like it is <laughs> not, there's nothing like it in today's world. It makes sense that one, they clung, they did that. Two, they clung to it. And three, that farmers would have to make a ridiculous case for themselves after discovering farming to abandon a, a, what is a relatively non-intensive method of getting food. If food is mm. quite, it sounds like it's quite literally everywhere around you. And so they write the their earliest expansions were about as far removed as one could imagine from the mission civilistories of modern agrarian empires. Mostly, as we'll see, they filled in territorial gaps left behind by foragers. You know, so they weren't they weren't winning the hearts and minds of people, right? They were filling in places where foragers weren't, geographical spaces that were too remote or weren't accessible or were undesirable to them. And 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 even in these places, right, farming still wasn't um, consistently beating out on foraging. In the early Neolithic period of Central Europe, farming endured one of its first and most conspicuous failures. And so, and so, you know, the next section here, or you know, this this next chunk, we'll talk about how this this failure is is an important way to think through one of the reasons why, and others like it, why foraging, you know, was clung to. Right? There's no real reason at this time for them to have developed farming, but even then, they say historically speaking, there's no direct connection among these cases. What they show, however, uh, what they show collectively is how the fate of early farming societies often hinge less on ecological imperialism than on what we might call, to adapt a phrase from the pioneer of social ecology, Mary Bookchin, an ecology of freedom. By this, we mean something specific. If peasants are people existentially cult- involved in cultivation, then ecology of freedom, play farming in short, is precisely the opposite condition. The ecology of freedom describes the proclivity of human societies to move freely in and out of farming, to farm without fully becoming farmers, raise crops and animals without surrendering too much of one's existence to the logistical rigors of agriculture, and retain a food web sufficiently broad as to prevent cultivation from becoming a matter of life and death. Which makes sense, right? You, If you want to maintain a certain type of lifestyle that doesn't subdue everyone to agriculture, which the adoption of agriculture would and does and probably did in small-scale experiments, then you want to pursue ecological arrangements that preserve that and what better way to do that at at various points was than foraging in specific environments right because it seemed like you know and 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 something that's overlooked by historians historians tried to think of agriculture as the point of no return when really it was more like as we've seen adopted in small scale experimented with used in early rudimentary sciences it was um it was incorporated step by step, and there were transitions, and there were rejections, and there were reversions. Right? It was a it was a spectrum, a flexibility, not not like a, a gate where you know, like in the fucking Lord of the Rings, where it's like, what, you know, this is the farthest I've been from from home. One more step, and I'll be a farmer. You know, like that's not that's that's not how it ended up working. But it does. I think it's been helpful from them and hearing and and reading through the analysis. To realize that that is pretty much how most of the world histories 
paint this, right? That farming, you get stuck once you do farming. And that ecologies, even though we know how much work it is to maintain them and preserve them, that people just did it mindlessly. That once they decided to farm, that was it. That was it. They didn't think about garden cultivation or flood retreat. They didn't think about margins. They didn't think about the flood method that we covered in the last chapter. They didn't think about any of that. They didn't think about corralling. They didn't think about anything other than we need to keep agriculture. When it makes more sense if you step back and think about it. Once they embarked on the, or once they started doing agriculture, realizing this shit fucking sucks. What parts <laughs> of it do we need and what parts of it do we mm. want? And what parts of it are incompatible with what the type of life that we want to live? Exactly. They have a beautiful line here that ends this section that I love. It's biodiversity, not biopower, was the initial key to the growth of Neolithic food production. I mean, that's so great. That that sums it up perfectly. You know, that's the uh, the ecology of freedom. You know, that's based on that biodiversity, a harmonious relationship with nature, with the surrounding land, with the the you know, in the in this web of of life um, versus the ecological imperialism. You know, that's biopower, right? That's this idea of you know of conquering the land, conquering the the flora and fauna, uh, you know, subjugating it to your own demands and your own commands and, and, and so on. And, you know, I think there's, there's some lessons to draw here, right? The, 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 I think a big lesson that, that David Graeber and Wingro are really pointing out in that, in that sense of biodiversity as well is, you know, it's, it's not just that, it's not that this is what we have to go back to, right? We have reached the point of no return in terms of like, we can't just give up on farm on farming. We can't just revert back to um, that primitivist utopia uh, and, you know, be able to, to go out and, you know, who needs a grocery store when I can just step outside my house and there's all these fruits and nuts and, and, and animals and plants and so on that can sustain me. Uh, you know, we can't, we can't go back to that, but the, one of the big lessons that they draw here is that, um, that lifestyle, that, that, that biodiversity approach, you know, did sustain a lot more people a lot longer and in a lot more complex social relationships and organizations than we are told. You know, we are, we are told, um, that the, the story of history is that, you know, yes, that works, but it only works for hyper small scale, uh, you know, primitive humanity. But then as soon as we start, you know, branching out a little bit and having towns and settlements, let alone cities and so on, then we can, then we have to revert to biopower. Then we have to do ecological imperialism. We have to do agriculture and so on. But the historical record as we've been laying out shows that that's not the case, that the, that, that, uh, uh, an approach that was a little bit of mixing of uh, a little bit of foraging, a little bit of hunting, a little bit of farming, uh, you know, living in harmony with, with the land was able to sustain, you know, not just thousands, but, you know, millions of people around the world. Um, and, you know, th this to me is a, is a, a, a really big lesson here. You know, again, it's not, all right, well, we need to go back to this, but it is also the case that there are lessons to be learned in terms of reconfiguring how we think about agriculture and farming um, that 
is less biopower and more biodiversity. Uh, you know, factory farming is, of course, the um, the perfect example of an extreme version of biopower here, um, and we see the consequences of it. You know, this was one of the things that. Graeber and Wingro point out in their discussion of ecological imperialism is that when the Europeans brought with them, uh, you know, li uh, uh, plants and livestock, you know, crops and livestock um, from Europe to the U.S., it also brought with them all these diseases that humans had picked up through um, close, intimate cohabitating with uh, with their with cattle, with livestock, with animals. And lo and behold, I mean, as we know, you know, COVID was a uh, one of these, you know, uh, what was it, zootopic or, or you know, something like that, right? Uh, uh, it was a crossover, right? It was a disease that was brought about from capitalism, essentially, you know, capitalist methods of factory farming, raising and slaughtering livestock, of that that long, you know, cohabitating, intermingling um, between uh, humans and uh, and livestock. And it brings with it all these diseases, you know, uh, and viruses. And all that's to say is, you know, that I think this is, there's been a lot more attention lately towards this idea that, you know, not only is this kind of biopower, uh, you know, approach to farming uh, detrimental to the environment, you know, not, you know, from monocropping uh, and soil degradation up to, you know, climate change. But it is also just quite directly detrimental to our own uh, health and ability to survive through um, these kinds of diseases and, and are increasingly becoming more and more the case. I mean, you know, I'll just point to Mike Davis's book, you know, on, on avian flu. Um, and, and also Chuang, you know, had this really great essay in 2020 on uh, capitalist contagion, um, you know, and all of this is just to point out that, you know, these are, are very predictable uh, consequences of this move towards um, uh, more and more biopower, more and more um, farming and agriculture in the extreme versus this kind of biodiversity approach. approach.